welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. My name's Christine Essen. I'm CEO and co-founder of Scottish Business Network, the global community making meaningful connections between Scottish organisations and the Scottish diaspora. I feel that today's guest, in the words of David Letterman, really needs no introduction, as he's a well-kent figure and supporter for business leaders and entrepreneurs here in Scotland and across the globe. Sandy Kennedy started his career very early supporting his family business, studied at Cambridge and then took up employment in the City of London as a lawyer before returning for more studies here in Scotland. Lessons learned along the way have helped Sandy have his finger very much on the pulse during his tenure as Chief Executive of Entrepreneurial Scotland, whose key aim is to, to ensure that Scotland is a beacon for entrepreneurship and that by 2030 to envisage Scotland where new ideas and businesses thrive and flourish. Now Sandy has moved on from that role and is bringing his passion for Scotland's potential to a number of businesses because Sandy wants to ensure that we can unlock through entrepreneurship by developing talent, support and policy making, community building and help in joining up a multiplicity of ideas and roles to make sure that Scotland is this beacon from for entrepreneurship. Sandy, welcome. Oh, Christine, thank you so much. That was a very long intro indeed, and uh, I recognise at least some of it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's brilliant to be with you, Christine. And, and as the the listeners may know, you and I are, are good friends over many years. So I'm slightly nervous, if I'm honest, because I'm thinking that I might get caught out and I get a few fastballs. So um, I, I'm yeah, a bit in trepidation, but very much looking forward to a chat with you, Christine, as ever. And delighted to have you. And as I always ask, Sandy, what, what's the view from your window today? Well, I'm in an office. I'm in IGS's office in Glasgow, which is, uh, you know, if, if people don't know, IGS is a vertical farm infrastructure business that's taking on the world. And we've got offices all over the world, but we do have one in Glasgow. And I've got a tiny window. I can see that beautiful blue sky that you were describing. I'm looking out over the rooftops of Glasgow. And you may hear in the background the drumbeat of Glasgow traffic going on. And I'm seeing the steam coming out of chimneys and seeing, I suppose, people hard at work. So it's a pleasure to report here from Glasgow. Brilliant, brilliant. And it's so great to see that energy returning to the city again, Sandy. It's been it's been a sad yeah, loss right. over recent years. So let's go back to the start. Sandy, where did you grow up and, and what was family life like? My goodness, that's a that's a big, broad sweeping question, Christine. Um so so maybe answering in two parts. So in the practical sense, I was brought up in Glasgow. My parents lived out, I moved out to Lanarkshire and then to Stirling. So covering sort of Glasgow, Lanarkshire, Stirling is my places where I was about. But what was it like growing up? I suppose, and particularly for this podcast, um, probably the most defining part of it was I had very loving parents, but we came from a family business and that family business heritage was in was in laundries, laundries in Glasgow back into the 19th century. And pretty much as as young as I was able to or allowed to, I started working in shops. And by then, they'd also gone into photo developing. And I, I suppose, earned a big dose of humility working with 
the you know with the public and the customers as king back as a 13 14 year old and perhaps more profoundly i was in shops where and um, the shop manager uh, typically a lady in their 50s and 60s really told me what was what and i knew where i was uh where I stood in the pecking order, and that was right at the bottom. Uh, and that, I think I see that upbringing with business being talked about all the time at the table, a big dose of humility, a big dose of recognising that, that staff and teams were the, you know, I suppose the central point of all great, great businesses. And traits that I'm sure you've carried through throughout your business career with that very hard graft learning at the start, Sandy? I hope so. Um, I think I think something that really struck me about that time was really how, even though you know academically I was you know smart enough and I could get all the grades, I realised in those you know at the shop front you really learn from the people around you, and there was so much that you know I suppose mountains of stuff that you don't know, uh, and I suppose I've, I've tried my very best not to get above myself, but at the same time apply a sense of fun but also enterprising spirit to go after stuff as well at the same time so that combination of hopefully a bit bit of humility and determination go along so lofty ambitions sandy and lofty ambitions which took you to study law at cambridge university a wonderful start in any career why cambridge and why law uh it's a good question i i I remember, I think it was the end of my fifth year at secondary school, and I remember my dad taking me to one side and going, son, if you don't do very well on your exams or you don't want to go to university, then Marks and Spencers do a fabulous apprentice sort of, uh, program straight from school. So why I tell that story is I had no pressure whatsoever from my folks to go and do anything. And I, when I, when I, start to look at university, I was being urged by my school, you know, you could get to university. I thought, all right, okay, I'll give that a go. And I suppose if we start with why law, the reason was because I was pretty good. And if I say myself, I was pretty good at most things. So I was good at English, I was good at maths, I studied physics, I studied business studies, um, all sort of at at a higher level. Um, But I was not like brilliant enough at maths, say, to go and study maths, or brilliant enough at English to go and study English literature. But law was one of these degrees that sort of sat in between everything. So a logical mind combined with somebody who's fairly articulate um, seemed to fit. And I, I didn't come from any background. My family had always been in business. Um, my, on my mum's side, she'd been a, her, her dad had been a tea planter and farmers before that. So I didn't really have that legal background. So really, I had no idea what I was going into. So that so law seemed like a good fit. And then on the um, the other side is to to why Cambridge. Well, I actually applied to just Scottish universities to start with, um, and it was in the Easter holidays before I sat my final exams. I just realised that I just didn't want. I had a place at Edinburgh to do law, and I just thought that was just too close. And I decided that. Um, I'm going to do go out, and then I just sat my my final exams with not having a place at university, and did really well. And my head teacher rang me up, or rang my folks up probably first, saying we would like to put him forward for Cambridge, and I'd not even thought about it. And then so I took a year out, um, which I was having to do anyway, 
which I did a combination of working, working in hotels, working with United Biscuits and then going traveling and went through the process and got a letter, I remember in December of, um, whatever that was, 1988, something like that. Um, and I remember, the thing I do remember about it is I went to the pantomime that night and also I sat my driving test. I filled my driving test and had an amazing time, quite drunk at the pantomime uh, that night. So uh, it was a day of mixed mixed successes, but uh, here we are. So I'm just imagining going for, I take it was our pantomime in Glasgow oh, yes. you were at. The best. Yes, the best, exactly. And a pantomime in Glasgow is quite unique. And then from that to Cambridge, what, what were your first impressions well, as like you arrived like that. in that beautiful place? Oh, thank you. It's a stunning place, but I do like that beautiful um, sort of comparison of Cambridge and a pantomime. There is there's an element of that. A lot of it is very theatrical. Uh, I suppose I arrived, I was a year older than, than any because I'd taken a year out. Um, but what I found was I was initially intimidated all the imposter syndrome stuff that you might expect um and the result of that was that um so you can see the police going by um as a result of all that i started to to study hard but i realized actually i could one i was smart enough so therefore i wasn't intimidated i was never sort of like in the top five percent but i was in the top quarter all the time and i thought oh i can do this but then i realized i could bring a bit of spirit and a bit of verve and a bit because I came from a business background where most people didn't come from business backgrounds I came from a background far far away so being Scottish was very unique so therefore putting your kilt on really opened that up and I used to do or combining both of them I used to run gigs and stuff like that and run Kayleys and stuff and I found actually I could make quite a lot of money doing that as well because they did like a party there so, so all in all, it was an amazing opportunity, amazing experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot also about not taking some people who appear to be super smart too seriously. I made some great friends. Um, and then it took me to London. So that was a journey, I, again, looking back to, to my days at school, I never even thought about. Uh, and that was, that set came, going to Cambridge to London was an easy transition. It wasn't a difficult. Yeah, and, and it's that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, as, as we'll hear as the conversation progresses, Sandy, it's so evident from early days, and there you are at university, using what I always talk about is our superpower, we're Scottish, yep. we're unique in so many ways, and using that to help your entrepreneurial spirit, well, let's just run a Kayleigh. I couldn't think of anything better in the environs of, of Cambridgeshire. So, as you say, you moved to the city and it was, am I correct, the VC company, 3i, was that, that your was first role? That was my second role. So what I did was, because I, I studied law, I then went to law yeah. school in York, and then, but I got, I joined one of the magic circle firms called Asher's, and that firm, or Asher's, a great firm, really was at the pioneer behind the sort of um, private equity industry so they were the in terms of the the legal process you needed to put in place to to do um, leverage buyouts so th that's where I cut my teeth so I did four years there um, great people great firm but to be honest I was bored I really got bored and I, just because all the deals felt like one after the other 
And we were working with quite a lot of the big private equity houses that were coming through that time. Um, and then I got approached by 3i um, and moved across uh, to do deals with them initially as a, sort of the, I suppose, the lawyer on it and then more laterally working um, more closely with investment executives around. And I did a lot of tech deals at that time. So that was way back at the beginning of or the end of the 1990s um, when tech was just uh, in one of its first big explosions uh, with the dot-com bubble. So all, all this is happening, as you say, the dot-com bubble, London, you've got your degree from, from Cambridge. The world is your oyster, Sandy Kennedy. And yet you came back to Scotland to gain more qualifications at Strathclyde University for your MBA, meanwhile running a division of the family firm. What what prompted the, this change and... You know, how did you manage those two key roles? Obviously successfully, because you won a student prize during your MBA. But what, what prompted that move, Sandy? Um, I think being a wee bit flippant about it is that London as a 20-year-old is an amazing experience. And that was through the 90s. And I was into clubbing and house music and that sort of stuff. And really London was, in some ways, alongside you know, New York and Chicago, the epicenter for that kind of music. And I and I loved it. I had a great time, great friends, we had a fabulous flat. Um, however, I was looking at it and I sort of the way I'd been flipping about it was there's only so many nightclubs you can be a VIP member of. And I realized that that was time for me, that maybe this wasn't the full extent of my life's purpose. Um, and... I was getting, I was in a relationship and I just, it just wasn't going to be the right one. I didn't feel, and I've also, I, and something I've not touched on, I've done a lot of traveling in my life and I, every single job change, every single transition from university to, or pre-university or after university, I always wanted, I always got myself a wee window to go traveling. So I felt that I really, one, wasn't sure London was the right place, two, wanted to do some study and three, wanted to do some traveling. So I, I, and I was very fortunate, you know, I'd earned a fair bit of um, sort of savings on the way through and pretty much blew it on taking a year and a half out. Um, And I went traveling around South America um, into Patagonia, did quite a lot of of walking and then back to the MBA. Uh, I also did not silly great things in there. I did things that um, I thought I'll never do again. So I was a runner for a TV show in the Edinburgh Festival. I went and just studied a film course for a week when it was me, aged whatever, 29, and lots of people in their 70s. Um, It was just, I just did loads of things during that year and a half that I just thought, yeah, just hell, what am I going to do? The things that when you're sat at four o'clock in the morning in a board meeting, board board meeting waiting for a deal to close, you thought, life's more than this. So I did all that. And then I did my MBA and I sort of flitted between part-time and, and distance learning. I didn't move. I just you know, changed it as I went um, and just really, really loved it. I loved the study of it and really getting into it. And it was the entrepreneurship side that very much took my fancy. From the family business side, I, I sort of felt, because I was a sixth generation Alexander Kennedy into the family business, it had always been a magnet, even though my my dad and my mum had been pushing me not pushing me away but encouraging me away I felt it was 
there's a wee bit of destiny there. Um, and so I felt I had to come back and try. And the business was doing very well at that point. Um, so it wasn't like it was a sideways or a altruistic move. Um, and then the opportunity came to effectively, you know, cut my entrepreneurial teeth by starting something from absolute scratch and, and growing it, um, which was in the sort of direct to consumer, digital, um, to online side. And, and back in whenever that was 2000, that was very, very new. Um, yeah, I loved it. And then I fell in love with it at that point. You have, you know, studied at the greats, you know, MBA in Strathclyde, globally recognised, you've studied at Cambridge, and yet, sorry, and alongside that, you have studied so much in business. You're saying, you know, there's multiple businesses you've just mentioned there, Sandy. Where do you feel, from your perspective, has the greatest learning come from? Being, you know, the Nike School of Management, just do it, or sitting in these hallowed halls and studying. Where's your greatest learning come from? I think, I think it's inevitably it's a blend. Um, I, I think that there is so much to be learned from how people have, you know, done things before and, and gathering that, and whether that's from a, as you say, a hallowed institution or or, or otherwise. I think there is so much that we can learn from others. In the particularly the entrepreneurial space, however, if you had to distill it down to, well, you're only allowed a choice of two ways to do it, then it has to be by doing because inevitably mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial minded person, even if you're in a, a larger firm, you can only explore and try and do new things by experimenting. And experimenting means that you've got to learn by doing. And that means you've also got to be good at listening and thinking and reflecting and effectively closing the loop uh, in that process uh, because by definition the stuff that you're trying to do tr- you're trying to push forward has never been done before and if it's been never been done before you can't go and find it find it in a book the other the other sort of channel that i think is vital and you've already touched on this and i know this is very important to to sbn as well is peer-to-peer is that having people who you have a shared may not know them, but you have a shared journey together or a shared sense of suffering in many cases. A lot of it is is born over that. And I can feel my sweat coming out of me as I think of making payroll at certain points or um, the points where you think it's all going to fall apart or it does. Um, those are the points where, where you can really learn from, from your peers. Um, in a, and it's so important that we have safe spaces um, to talk about these things. And and I know this is something that you're very passionate about. It's not just it's not just the business lessons, which obviously are really important. It's also the um the challenges around mental health and, and the pressures that that brings. Uh, and also the and you and I have had some some really good conversations about this. I'm a great respecter of of your position on this and I hopefully follow you is you're really calling things out and saying, this is not good enough, what we're going to do about it. Um, And that can only be done face-to-face. That can only be done by building trust. That can only be done with people who want to see things be different. Um, And, yeah, so so that would be – I appreciate – if I had to just choose two, it would be that doing and peer learning, 
However, I do think there is a place for academia, particularly if you want to be a lawyer, because yeah. there's a heck of a lot of books and stuff to learn there. An awful lot, but it takes us very nicely into your your next CEO role of the Saltar Foundation. And so often when we are talking to the wonderful Alex Lawson, Neil McInnes, etc., Saltar Foundation and the impact this had on the individuals is a recurring theme as I always say, for those who are not fortunate enough to be Scotland studies or, or know about it, can you share a bit more about the Saltire Foundation and how groundbreaking that is or has been? Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you for saying that, Christine, because I, in a sense, maybe wrapping the last bit of the story first is, so my, my journey with uh, Barry Castlebank, Click Monroe, went on a, a roller coaster and there was a load of story and I'm happy to get into that. But it culminated without giving us too big a spoiler, it culminated us going into administration in 2008. And at our peak, we'd had 3,000 staff, um, £140 million turnover, 600 stores all over the UK. Um, and, and that peak was only maybe five years prior to that. Uh, but the issue was being in photo developing, being in retail, banking with the Bank of Scotland when the credit crisis hit in 2008, we just had no chance. Um, so we went down there. So I was faced with, a, well, I'll do anything. I'll try anything. And I never thought about going in and running a charity. But Salter Foundation grew. But at that point, it was just an idea. I was the first, essentially first employed individual in the whole organisation. Um I was you know, very much looked to, to fabulous people like Mark Bamforth, Helen Sales, Don McLeod and others who were right at the heart, right at the start. I sort of came in and sort of, you know, beginning of Act One. Um, but to, to answer your question of, of describing it, so the Salter Foundation was founded on the premise that Scotland had huge unlocked potential and that unlocked potential was particularly in our people or maybe only in our people and wanted to focus in on the next generation and say, what can we do to unlock the sort of obvious latent potential that's sitting in our young people? And we it resulted in essentially two programmes to start with. One, the Salter Scholar Intern Programme, which at that point was providing, well, at that point was maybe three or four interns going around the world uh, at that time, an internship in a, in a globally recognised business. Um, and the other one was the Salter Fellowship Programme, which is working in partnership with Babson College and providing a blend of practical hands-on experience with academic teaching and then connecting them back into the sort of Scottish startup and scale-up system. And those two programmes were the start. And I added a third, or we added a third, which was an alumni programme. And it was very deliberately seen as a programme alongside. And again, it's the same spirit as is in the SBN, which is that actually going on a programme is all well and good, but what you want to do is land in a community. And it's that community of people who are understand where you're going to go from, where you're coming from, understand you know the journey you'd be on. There's that shared sense of identity. Equally, when things were going badly, we're going to be there to put an arm around you or pick you up and say, go again, strive again you can do it. And also when things maybe are going really well to give you a kick up the arse and go, come on, you can do better than this, keep going. So that's what we were striving to do. Fast forward to now, and to be honest, I couldn't imagine it, 
We've had we've placed more than 1,500 Saltar Scholar interns. They many most describe it as life changing. I uh, can't remember how many. I think it's 140 Salter Fellows um, and a combined alumni community within just those two programs, obviously, of, of getting towards 2,000. And these are 2,000 people who are, as a unit, are trying to, to do great things for for Scotland, for the world, for the businesses they're in, et cetera. And I think I'm very, very proud of that. I think we went on one step further in terms of a broader bringing a, the entrepreneurial community together there, but that's another story. Yeah. And then that evolved into, became part of Entrepreneurial Scotland. There, there's a theme here, <laughs> Entrepreneurial Exchange, Entrepreneurial Scotland. Again, t- talk me through how did that role come, up, come about, Sandy, and, and the aims and ambitions of, of this organisation? So... So if you imagine, so that so I joined uh, Salter Foundation in 1989, um, and by sort of 2013, we'd started to really cut our teeth. We've got we we were initially just um, staffed by Scottish Enterprise, and we spun out of Scottish Enterprise, and I think it was 2010, and really we're starting to get some traction. But you know, running a small charity um, with a mix of philanthropy and, and commercial revenue was hard work as ever. And then at the same time, Entrepreneurial Exchange had been sort of, I suppose, a gem of Scotland's entrepreneurial scene for a long time. And John Anderson was at a stage of thinking that it was, he was thinking about his next step. And it was Chris Vander Kyle who came to me and said, Sandy, I I know I'm not going to be able to convince you to come and join Entrepreneurial Exchange from Salter Foundation, but how about we combine both of them together and then see if we could do something even more and I really want you to lead that. So that was that was it and we the two boards talked and debated it and all that good stuff. But the, the key thing that that for me clinched it was if Saltar Foundation was all about developing and unlocking that potential, that talent, then uh, Entrepreneurial Exchange and the membership was all about having amazing ideas or platforms for talent to perform. And therefore what we felt was by bringing the two together that you could end up doing both sides of that. So you, you're supporting the uh, incredible entrepreneurial businesses in Scotland, but also bringing that both international perspective and um, young, vibrant, energetic talent into the mix as well. So that was the goal. And then it was all around a time when there was a reframing, I think, around whether it was chicken and egg, I don't know, reframing about the role of entrepreneurship in Scotland and entrepreneurship for some time had been a bit of a dirty word, but it was starting to become cool and important. So, um, yeah, it was in 2014, that was a key moment to, to, to start to, I suppose, talk about it at a national level and entrepreneurial Scotland fulfilled that purpose amongst others. I, I know you've moved on from, from ES and, and CEO there. So this question is to you, Sandy Kennedy, uh, you know, a leader in entrepreneurship, you're, you're an author, regular author in this topic. And now I was reading something in a previous interview you had, Sandy, and you said, if you have a good idea with a great leader, you can make a great company. But you, Sandy Kennedy, are not sure Scotland is good enough at creating great leaders. Is that is that still your same view? And, and if so, 
why? Where where is our challenge around all this potential and talent that you've spoken about? So, so firstly, probably shape the the statement slightly differently now, that different to how I shaped it before, and and it actually came from a bit of a mantra that um, 3i had uh, way back in the day, and, and others have is that if you take you can take a great idea and put an average team or leader on it, then you end up with an average idea. You can take an average idea and put a great team and you end up with a great idea or great business. So I think the key difference I would change from from how I said it before would be team rather than leader. And that includes leadership team. Obviously within that team, you require leadership. Um, And I still stand by that, that idea. I think the point around Scotland is... It's, it's a bell curve and there's clearly some just off the chart brilliant teams and businesses going on and you know I work with IGS as an example you know I'm, I'm a huge fan uh, and lover of uh, uni and the guys that what they're doing there and some of the the earlier stage businesses that are coming through that are close to my heart like discover and um, the brain tumor and um, diagnostic business and and many many others so there are great in that bell curve there are many there i though think that we maybe culturally as a society and i think it maybe is better than it was but i think culturally society we're suspicious still of people who are successful um or who are striving to to make a difference particularly in um in an entrepreneurial way i think we are a or can be despite some of our proclamations differently, quite a conservative country. And that means if you're conservative, then the status quo is a a preferred state. And, um, you know, in my world, you know, or our world, you know, becoming a doctor, a lawyer, was the accountant would be the, they're the, the well-regarded things, but you wouldn't want to get your hands dirty going into trade or being an entrepreneur. I think that still subsists. I think it's better. And I think, though, that that status quo conservatism, whilst not there all the time, is almost the antithesis to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is about doing things differently. It's about trying to see the world in a in a different way. And therefore, people who do that come up against the system, come up against the societal pressures, and therefore... Maybe to to look at our, I, I do believe we're not creating nearly enough entrepreneurial teams that can create enough and the number of entrepreneurial businesses that we should be creating given the intellectual horsepower that we've got in the country, the research and university founding that we've got. Um, I think universities are an incredible asset and a part of the solution, but are also part of the problem. Um, I think government is an incredible asset and the, and the proximity to government that we have and the desire to do things is really important, but actually they're part of the problem as well. Um, and even, you know, people like me are part of the problem. You know, I, I've got a particularly worldview, but I really want to be part of the solution. You said that you've got a particularly world view. As, as anyone who knows anything about me is, I feel that we are too insular here in Scotland. Less than 3% of our 245,000 SMEs 
export. And yet, we, you and you know, part of it in your key leadership role with, with EA said that very clearly for Scotland to be a beacon of entrepreneurship by 2030 and envisage a Scotland where new ideas and businesses thrive. But you and I both know we are kicking up against the conservatism, the status quo. 2030, if I fast forward to 2030, and given what's happening at the moment, Sandy, will we be that beacon for entrepreneurship? Or will you and I still be talking about the what if or the if onlys? Um, well, great, great question. I, I think, and I think you and I share this, is we got injected with the optimism bug and the entrepreneurial view that actually there is a better way. So with eight years still to go, um, near, or I suppose seven as we draw close to 2022, yeah, I still believe that, that we can do it. I do believe that we are, to use sort of the change management philosophy of on a burning platform, we, with the combinations of climate, um, cost of living crises, energy crises, um, I think a reframing of what our um, industrial landscape might look like. We have every single reason we could ever have asked for to drive change. You and I have known it for a long time. Others have known it for a long time. The only way is a truly entrepreneurial approach. And I mean that in a broad sense of entrepreneurial. I'm meaning I've just been with Glasgow School of Art incredible institution, incredibly creative, incredible people, young and old in there, they're entrepreneurial by my definition. And we need to unlock those people, open the doors and stop our silos and our tribalism and really embrace that. So, yeah, so to answer your question, yes, I really do think we can get there. We definitely have the burning platform. In people like Mark Logan with the uh, the role of the chief entrepreneur, I think we've got some really fabulous thinkers and people who aren't going to shut up and toe the party line. Um, equally, though, I worry about pace. I think if you ask, you know, I've spoken to many entrepreneurs, they talk about momentum. And you, what you do is you build momentum. The hardest part is at the beginning and you have to, make some tough, bold choices, and you have to move at pace. You need to learn as you're going. We need to build the sort of the, I suppose, um, it's like a movement. You've got to build a movement of people who are believing in it. And that's going to come from all parts of our society. And I don't know what the shape of that sort of societal future might look like, but I know it's going to have entrepreneurship in it or an entrepreneurial mind, creative mindset in it somewhere. Um, but we just have to start. We need to really get going. And I worry that the risk is that that conservatism states quo, oh, it's not that bad, bad type of thing, will just persist and we'll be distracted and it won't happen. So that I suppose I'm, I'm less naively optimistic than I have been in the past, but I'm not going to give up. And I know you're not either. No, no, I think we have the battle scars, which if anything, Sandy just wants us to kick against yeah. it for, as you say, the, the status quo, the conservatism. 
And yet, you know, and, and you and I, every day we're talking to entrepreneurs and we just think, why are we not even more further ahead if we could just bottle that energy? It's, it's yeah, it's it's challenging, but always good to have these, these conversations. Um, time, as always, and marching away from us, Sandy, I, as anyone who knows me knows I've got a thousand questions I've added here, but I'm going to stick to the script. You, you're now into more of a portfolio career, if that be fair to say, um, with a number of, of key roles. What was your driver behind that, Sandy? I think I can guess the answer for what you've said. And, and what, what are your ambitions now at your in, within your career? So, so firstly, I'm definitely not doing a portfolio. I don't, I don't see it like a portfolio. I see that as something that maybe something I might do in ten years' time. But at the moment, I see I'm a, I'm an activist, um, an entrepreneurial optimist out there getting stuff done. I, but doing it amidst different organisations to different degrees. Um, so, what prompted me? Well, I, I was chief exec of. Salter Foundation that then evolved into Entrepreneurial Scotland Foundation for 12 years. And around about 10 years, I realized that uh, it was it was time for me to, to hand the baton on. But I wanted to do so as a super good lever. And then the pandemic hit. So you know, put that to one side and then continued on. But I really wanted to be the best possible transition uh, that was available. So that was my first objective. And then when I came out, what I wanted to do was I knew the sort of the boundaries, the fence around within which I wanted to work. And that was very much entrepreneurship of all kinds. Um, and then I thought the advice often is when you're in this transition is be careful what you say yes to and all that sort of stuff. And just take your time, pick what you want to do. I, and I would see this more in retrospect, I did the opposite, which is, and maybe that's the entrepreneurial contrarian in me, was I said yes to everything that I liked the people I was working with, that I felt fitted within the boundaries of what I was interested in, and then did so with plenty scope to to have an exit in a very gracious way if I needed it. So where that finds me is the bulk of my time is with the amazing uh, vertical farming businesses, IGS, which is on its rocket ship journey with all the, all the challenges um, that that brings. But I felt that was a huge honor to be there and join join David and Andrew and Lawrence and uh, Sarah uh, on the journey and, and many other crewmates as we're known. Um, but I thought it was important that I went back to the coal face again. Uh, so that was part one. Part two is I'm a non-exec with um, Elevator uh, who deliver 40% of uh, business gateway services, um, but are run by Gary and a fabulous team there who really want to do things differently, they run accelerators, et cetera. And they're a social enterprise who wants to make a difference right in my sweet spot of what we want to do. Um, I've also working with Mark Bowman and uh, Andrew McNeil and Andrew Durkey at EOS Advisory, which is all about investing in the rising stars from the tech, engineering, science, uh, spin outs again brilliant love all that um, I've been working with Mark Logan around entrepreneurship and you're know, on and off which is which is great um, and then doing all sorts of other advisory coaching I'm also doing a bit of teaching which has been great and um, really good but done hopefully in a very 
humble way. Um, but yeah, I'm loving it, absolutely loving it. And uh, we'll continue to say yes to, to all the things that come along. Uh, and then my job is actually to spin the plate to make sure they all, I don't drop any. I think I've discovered your secret. You must have the Hermione Granger time <laughs> turner there that you can have this duplicity of time, Sandy, to, to pack all that in. Um, time is marching on, sadly. So I'm going to ask for this acti- this entrepreneurial activist who is on his journey down to Cambridge as a, what were you, 18, yep. 17, 18, 18 when yeah. you went down? Yeah. You're on your journey down to Cambridge. What advice would Sandy Kennedy now give to that young Sandy Kennedy starting out at Cambridge studying law? Um, so if you if you, if I define it by where I am now, and I'm talking to myself rather than to the world at large, I would just say go for it and just do whatever comes to your mind because it's going to be all right. And uh, I think I arrived there thinking I was... You're, I was different and I was out of my comfort zone and I've maintained that all the way through everything I've done. Um, I think I would say don't be scared of changing and I think I did that. You know, People just stared at me with incredulity that I might not want to be a lawyer in a city law firm. They say, but you're going to be a millionaire by the time you're 40. That's not the point. <laughs> it's like, and I and I, I applaud my younger self for having the, I suppose, the confidence. Maybe it was the desire to go to more nightclubs and travel around South America, and maybe the incentives were slightly different, but um, they certainly were that there was more to life than that. So yeah, so that's what I'd say: is be curious, be bold, try your best. You're a good. Try and be the best person you can be, and if you do that, you'll be all right. Well, we are appreciative, all of us who have, have come into the, the Sandy Kennedy environs and, and your energy is infective, infectious, Sandy. So I am delighted you're not a millionaire living down in, in Cambridgeshire um, uh, as a lawyer there and return to Scotland and provide that phenomenal support to so many people, both at the start of their journey and also midway through when they're thinking, is this worth it? It's been a great pleasure to be part of of your circle, Sandy, and thank you for taking the time today to share your thoughts with us. Christine, it's it's a real pleasure and vice versa. I mean, as you know, there are so many fabulous people um, doing great work in lots of different places and the spirit and that um, camaraderie that we all have and desire to see things different uh, is, is it's, it's entirely mutual. So thank you. Thank you, Sandy. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.